Apple presents events at the Apple Store. All right, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this afternoon's guest moderator for Tribeca Sneak Peek, Kara Kusumano. Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Tribeca Film Festival Sneak Peek. This is our annual event uh, showcasing some of the films and filmmakers that will be screening at the festival next week. Uh, Tribeca Film Festival runs April 15th to 26th, and tickets are on sale now. So if you're interested in any of these films you're going to be hearing about today, please check out our site. Uh, we have over 100 uh, feature films in the festival, so I hope we'll all be seeing you next week. So uh, I'd love to introduce our panel of filmmakers. First up, we have Nelson George, the director of A Ballerina's Tale. Andrew Renzi, the director of Franny. Zachary Trites and Caitlin Scheel from Men Go to Battle. Aaron Lee Carr of Thought Crimes. And Celia Ralston Hall, director of Ma. Thank you all for being here. Um, so we're going to see some uh, trailers, clips, sneak peeks, some things that maybe you haven't seen before. Um, and let's get started right away with a clip from Ballerina's Tale. first discovered ballet at 13. I had no prior training. I had no prior experience. I had no exposure to it. There aren't any professional ballet companies or schools where I come from, San Pedro, California. By 17, I was in New York, a member of the American Ballet Theater. Based on body type, pedigree, and background, I should not have been a part of one of the world's greatest ballet companies. Through movement, I found my calling. Through ballet, I found my voice. My name is Misty Copeland, and this is my story. A Ballerina's Tale. Your film is about Misty Copeland, the ballerina. Right. So how did you first meet Misty and decide to make this film together? Uh, she's one of the premier dancers at ABT. Uh, and so I'd never been to a ballet. She was doing the Firebird at the Met. So wow, I went to see this. It was really an historic, the first time a black woman had danced at, the, at that stage at the Met doing that particular famous dance. And at the end of the performance, there was a meet and greet. And she said, uh, I'm in incredible pain. And she danced the entire Firebird on, on six fractures in her left shin. And uh, it was the last dance she did. She basically was about to have major surgery but she was not going to miss the chance to dance to Firebird. And so that, that was in June 2012. I followed her, I sort of befriended her and her manager, and for uh, two years I followed her doing her recovery from basically Firebird being the height of her career at that point to this incredible low. 
of really almost not being able to dance again, and many thought she wouldn't come back. So while uh, Misty's in a biography, it's in a memoir, so it's not a full biography of her, it's more a portrait of, a, of an artist athlete at a crucial moment in their career. And it's a very intimate portrait. I'm in there with the doctors, I'm in there. Her very first return to stage was very, very awkward. Uh, and the journey is kind of triumphant, and, and the timing has been amazing because she, uh, last, end of last year, she did Swan Lake, the lead in Swan Lake, the black swan and the white swan uh, in Australia, and now she's in America. She's doing, she just did the Kennedy Center, and she's going to premiere it at the Met again. So she's made the entire journey back from that height to here to back up again. And so the film is really a snapshot of, of a portrait, you know, profile and courage, ultimately. Uh, the pain threshold uh, of her, any dancer, is unbelievable. Um, the stuff that you'll see in the film is pretty grueling at times. To create such beauty, it's amazing how much pain is involved. And I think that's, aside from the uh, social issues about blacks in ballet, there's a lot of talk about body image. Truly, the film works as a, as a portrait of uh, profile and courage, if you will, of someone coming back who uh, could have given up. Ballet companies can be sort of notoriously um, closed door. Did you find it difficult to get access to the company? Yes, that would be a yes. Um, most of the footage was shot uh, around the world. We shot in Italy, shot in Australia, where we had more access. A lot of the footage, backstage footage, etc., was done overseas or and done in. Um, and other venues. To, to shoot at the Met is, is cost prohibitive. It costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to go there. They gave us some leeway to shoot some exteriors, but it's very difficult to penetrate the world of classical ballet. Um, it's both a world that wants more access, it needs, quite honestly, the audience there is very old if you go to the Met and they need new blood, but it's not exactly the mo most welcoming environment for new ideas and new blood. So. Um, Misty is an interesting figure because she is both a woman of color. She's become kind of a pop figure. Uh, you know, she has, an underarm, she has the Under Armour campaign that went viral. She's got different kinds of endorsement deals. So she's moved with outside the world of ballet to a degree, um, which is both loved and hated within the world of ballet. It's a very interesting world. I've worked in a lot of different environments over the years, but that is very much a world that's very cloistered. Um, they need new energy. They need new audiences. But they're, from, my, from my point of view, having worked on this film for a couple of years, they're still very resistant to new ideas and new energy. So they're kind of like, an, it's, it's a world that's in, in conflict with itself, I think. Interesting. Great. So, well, thank you so much. Good thank luck you. Uh, at your premiere next weekend. The next film we're going to have a look at is Franny by Andrew Renzi. Franny. <laughs> Your old friend, Franny. Franny Watts. <laughs> How you been? <laughs> Francis. Yeah, Franny, Francis, whatever. Friend Watts. Here you go. Could you fill that up for me, please? Thanks. You don't have any more refills, sir. That can't be right. Do you have a new prescription, sir? No, I don't have a new prescription. I never had any prescription. Well, Dr. Gibbs calls these in for me. That's, that's how we do it. And you should call Dr. Gibbs. <sighs> Look, man, it's, it's after midnight. I can't call him now. Could you? Hey. Are you looking for the right name? Sir, sir, yes. Sir, please. Well, look under Gibbs. If 
it's urgent, you should go to the hospital. I have a hospital, all right? I own a hospital. Then you should go there, sir. Okay, okay. <laughs> So can you tell us a little bit more about the film in your own words? Yeah, um, so when I was much younger, um, my first job kind of in the film industry, I, was, I interned um, for Wes Anderson. I was like 19 years old and um, I was at his house and I was like organizing bookshelves and things like that, doing a lot of sort of little, you know, little random labor. And um, there was a copy of Franny and Zoe um, and um, it was already kind of one of my favorite books and, I op and inside the book there was this kind of handwritten letter in there that inspired me as a young guy to start making my own films. And so 10 years later, I, you know, I started making a, a film, you know, I was sort of writing a script that kind of dealt with similar themes of things that, that, were, that were familiar to me and also that um, were inspired by that, that book in some ways. That, that was sort of where it started. It has nothing to do with the book, but that's kind of where it started, sort of the idea of sort of outward, um, outward, outward image versus inner loneliness. And um, there was also a lot of inspiration. I grew up in the Philadelphia area, and uh, when I was growing up, there was sort of uh, the fabled stories of John DuPont, who's now pretty famous from the Foxcatcher movie. Um, and uh, I grew up in that area, and so there was a lot, of, a lot of sort of mythology surrounding this guy who had infinite resources, but little to no kind of personal connections and, um, you know, with people. And so I kind of started in that, in that place and then developed a personal story that was, um, you know, about three characters that, um, kind of intertwined through uh, necessity in some ways and, and, and about how this one character is trying to develop connections um, in the wrong ways, in unhealthy ways. And, um, you know, it was, it was a pretty personal film in, 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 in that, like, the plot is, is entirely fictional. The, you know, the characters are all conceptions, but um, each character sort of has an arc that deals with things that really were familiar to me. Uh, so, yeah, that's kind of uh, the genesis of it. Your, your cast are really great in the film. It also includes uh, Theo James and Dakota Fanning. Yeah. I'm curious um, how you work with them and particularly how Richard Gere sort of approached this character with you. Yeah, you know, it was, um, it was I wrote the script and then the script, you know, I, got, I was able to get it in front of some people that, um, that responded to the material. And so basically what, what I did was, you know, I met with, I met with Richard um, pretty early on, like, you know, about four months before we actually started shooting. And we just basically started talking about the film and, and our ideas. And um, he had he brought his own thing to the table. He had his own he had his own ideas about the character and about what he wanted to do. And I had mine. And so we kind of married them together. And um, you know, and it was really it was really it was really cool to work with him because this is kind of a role that he's never really gotten into before. I guess he's got such a long career and such a great career. 
and this was something that offered something a little different. The character, um, you know, to I guess the biggest thing is that he's not the object of anyone's sexual attention in this film, <laughs> which is pretty rare for him. But um, it's also um, there's also there's also just the simple fact that it's a pretty it can be a pretty unflattering character, and I and I really like that he wanted to tackle that. Um, you know, it's it's a character that was very difficult uh, to kind of garner the sympathy for and he really did a great job doing that and I think that's what Richard brings is that you you know he inherently is likable in a lot of ways because he's he's um, he's friendly and so yeah he really brought something pretty pretty exciting to it and uh, and then Theo James and Dakota were really kind of like perfect for me because the char Dakota plays this character that's um, that's growing up too fast in the wake of losing her family and she wants to uh, she wants to have a family of her own even though it's kind of misguidedly quick and and um, you know, there was a little bit of a, a, you know, a meta quality to that where we, we know Dakota Fanning forever. We've known her since she was a little girl and we kind of like want her to grow up or something like that. And, and so there was something really exciting for us to talk to uh, talk about that and her to be able to tackle and, and dig into that from a personal standpoint. And then Theo, um, I just really love that Theo was really just sort of like, you know, he was, um, he was hungry for, for, some, for some kind of like, you know, more like literary material, I guess you could say. The script was kind of a little bit literary and he was really hungry for that kind of thing. Um, he's kind of coming off of a big sort of franchise film and so he wanted to do something that uh, he could really kind of like sketch the character out. And, and so it was, yeah, it was a good blend of the three. And then your last film, Fishtail, was a documentary that premiered yep. at Tribeca last year. And I'm wondering about switching from doc documentary to narrative um, and where that choice came from and sort of if you brought anything from one genre into the other. Yeah, you know, I always want to make docs and I always want to make fiction and, you know, and, and I guess like my, my background is a bit more from the, um, you know, I, I love, you know, I really like art film and, um, and I, you know, and so the documentary I made was sort of a, a, came from that and then I, but I also like movies that entertain and so this film was really sort of like my attempt at, um, you know, making something that was reminiscent of the sort of studio films of the 80s and 90s but on the independent sphere, you know, it's, there's, you know, I, I love, I love independent film, and there's and there's there tends to be a lot of times, you know, this sort of trend of like very kind of stark and very stripped down things. And I wanted to do something that was incredibly sort of warm in tone and and color, and and but there was something sort of dark underneath of it. And um, so I think that like the documentary world really kind of like helped me just sort of, you know, try and capture some reality to what you're doing, even though this is a, a very sort of constructed film. So I don't know, it's, I guess it's just sort of like anytime you make a movie, you learn something. So I guess that's really the best way to think about it. Great, well, good luck when the film premieres on April 17th, right? Yeah, thanks, 17th. next Friday, yeah. And the next film we're gonna talk about is Men Go to Battle by Zachary Trites and Caitlin Shield. Henry. 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 describe this film as a punk period piece and I'm curious if you could talk a little more about that and then about you know sort of your approach to the material in general yeah maybe it's saying the word punk period piece <laughs> gives you the wrong impression it's not exactly um, 
80s punk period piece. Um, it's very much not like that. Um, but uh, <laughs> but we, we made it in a, um, a very sort of DIY, I guess, ethos over the course of um, over a year in Kentucky, where I'm from. Kate's from Jersey City. I'm from Jersey City. <laughs> right across the river. Um, and uh, made it with a very small crew. We wanted to make a, a um, period piece that would be uh, sort of handmade by us and wouldn't involve, you know, wouldn't have the unlimited resources that other people might have. And to see what that could do for our story, what that would do within our own means and how that would change, you know, the story and the characters and how we approached it. Um, yeah. Great. Can you tell us a little more about the story and sort of what the film's about? Do you want to take it? Um, well, I'll t it started from, I, I'm from Louisville, Kentucky, and grew up there, and it started from a family story of mine that, as Kate and I were listening to this story, we were like, I don't know how much of that really happened. And so we started doing a lot of research into the background of it, and then we ended up getting much more involved in, in um, archives and first-hand accounts and journals and diaries from various archives around mostly the South and Upper South that we were getting into and reading all these stories from unpublished letters, diaries, journals, um, and started pulling a lot of material from there and also came from the two main characters. Uh, who are played by Timothy Morton and David Maloney, um, two young men that we knew from, from Louisville. So we sort of crafted the story around them and their friendship. They're kind of like brothers, but... Yeah, old, old friends. Yeah. Okay. And so you collaborated on it, you co-wrote it, and then Zachary directed and Kate, you act in it. What is the... What, what was it, a little bit? What was your sort of collaboration process and how did you work together on it? Sure. Um, we did the research together and then we wrote the outline together, which was a constantly evolving thing um, because we shot piecemeal over the course of a year and Tim and David are not trained actors. Um, Tim has acted a little bit more than David, but the story sort of evolved as we saw what was working and what wasn't working. But um, we would write the outline together and then take scenes separately, write those and then hand them over to be revised by the other person. I think that's generally yeah. how it... I mean, there was, this, there was this script at the end of it, yeah. um, but we tried to be very open with how, the collaboration between the actors, ourselves, and um, everybody else, the cinematographer, the producers, the, everybody. It's a very small crew making this thing. Um, you know, generally somewhere between four and ten people at any given time, which is pretty rare for a period piece. <laughs> pretty <laughs> stupid. Um, and uh, so it was, it was a family affair, and these are people that I've made movies with over the last eight years, ten years, um, and we all like to, um, you know, have a little bit of a shorthand together, except for, you know, some of the actors, well, a ton of actors that we had never worked with, and Kate and I had never worked together before. But um, so it was a it was a collaborative process, I'd right. say. And on the same note, some of your production methods were really interesting and resourceful and sort of era appropriate. I wonder if you could talk a little about how you shot it in terms of the cinematography and then also capturing some of those um, really more, more epic large scale scenes that you got. Um, yeah, the, well, the first shoot that we ever did was also the first reenactment that I had ever been to. 
um, Orcate. And so we dressed up in period costume as per the instructions of the reenactors, but could not be soldiers. We had to be civilians, so we were like, uh, you know, embedded journalists um, with our cinematographer, Brett, who uh, does amazing work, but not usually inside of like a burlap sack with the camera. <laughs> so like treading, like taking a giant camera around um, over the hills and valleys and all this stuff through a really long, grueling weekend was our first sort of experience going out with this thing where he had this, the Alexa inside of a burlap sack. So every angle you looked at it from, except for the front, looked like he was just a guy carrying around a bag of potatoes, basically, um, which is a weird, you know, could have been like that back then. Um, and, um, and then we also had the inverse of that, which was a lot more um, traditional, I guess, and how, you know, building sets um, with a small team of art guys and girls from Kentucky and, you know, putting things together in a very premeditated, planned way. Um, anything else? I think that about sums it up. That sums it up. It's <laughs> great. Well, it's a fantastic film. Congratulations. I'm really Thanks. excited for your premiere uh, next Friday. Thanks so much. Thank yeah. You. Hopefully you guys can come. And the next film is another documentary, um, this time from our Spotlight section, and it's Thought Crimes by Aaron Lee Carr. Look what I still have, his police uniform. I don't know why I kept it. Well, we're not gonna wear that, certainly not. This doesn't, do I have to iron now? Oh, God. I'm so nervous. The judge is making a decision today. I called my family, I called my closest friends. I'm like, pray for me, pray for me. Because if there's gonna be bad news, I've been holding up all this time, Aaron. I've been holding up and I've been strong, but if I were to get bad news, I think that would be the end of me. I just wanna give him a really big hug that nobody tells me, ma'am, ma'am, you gotta leave. You know, I just want to hold on to him. I hope he doesn't have to spend one more night in that cell. Julia did say that, you know, if the news is bad, we still have other options. And what I said to her, like, well, in the meantime, my son is sitting in jail. Another year, another two years, how much longer? Oh, it's gonna be a media frenzy, but I'm not talking to anyone. Can you tell us when you know what's going to happen this morning? No. Well, just that I wanna see him not be a felon. I wanna see him be acquitted. He didn't commit any crimes. Tell us a little more about Thought Crimes and who the, the he is that we're talking about in this clip. <laughs> sure thing. Um, so this is about Gilberto Valley, who is the cannibal cop. Um, this was a big sort of case in New York in 2012 and 2013. 
and he was a young man, a police officer, who was convicted of trying to kidnap, rape, torture, and eat young women. Um, the prosecution said this is a person that was going to do it. The defense said it was all part of this elaborate sexual role play that he would do online. He would type to other men about women he knew that he wanted to kidnap and rape them and eat them. And uh, so I naturally said, uh, I wonder what happened here, and I started visiting him in prison. And what's really interesting about your film is not only the facts of this case that are fantastic that you go into, but also some of the philosophical questions you raise about the nature of crime and intentionality. And I'm curious um, where you, how you sort of balance the, the more straightforward telling of his story with these ideas that, all, that it raises about the justice system. Um, I think it was really important to do that. I think it was just like a true crime story about the cannibal cop. It would be kind of like beginning, middle, end. But he was searching things on Google, um, and it was being those Google searches were being used as evidence in court. As a journalist and as a documentary filmmaker, that didn't make me feel comfortable. I Google all sorts of things, and so it really had to be about the internet's ability to render our darkest thoughts visible. And I think you know it was it was really scary. It's like you know would he have would he would he have kidnapped these women had police intervention not happened. Or was it just a figment of his imagination? Right. And how did you first meet Gilberto? And was it difficult to get him to agree to be part of the film? Um, so I started visiting him in prison uh, when the media attention had pretty much died out. Um, he had been in solitary confinement. Uh, he was, he was a, like a broken person. Um, but of course, his lawyers were like, don't talk to press. Um, so I just started visiting him in prison with his family. I think it's really important in documentary filmmaking to like really uh, embed yourself in the family. And so we would just film and film and film until we got good things because, you know, it was very confusing. Uh, were they saying truthful things about him or was it like these, these sort of imaginary things that they, they said his son was innocent, but was he really? Right. Has he seen the film? Not yet. <laughs> He's going to see it uh, before it airs at Tribeca next week. Interesting. Okay, cool. Well, we're really looking forward to the premiere. I think it's going to be a fascinating conversation with you um, afterwards and once we premiere the film. So we have one more, uh, one more film to see and talk about, so let's see a clip from Ma by Celia Ralston Hall.
So how do you describe Ma? Um, I describe it as a dialogue-free film told entirely through movement and metaphor. And it is the journey of a virgin mother on a pilgrimage to Las Vegas to give birth to our savior. So it is a film very much about movement and you have a background in choreography and dance. So I'm wondering how you bring that performative sensibility to your work uh, on film. It's, I mean, dance and movement is, is the language in which I feel most comfortable. And so that's the way um, really in which I like to, to communicate and to tell story. And I feel that um, it can be just as powerful as words. And so for me, uh, that's, that's uh, what I'm interested in and what I want to tackle by telling a, a linear narrative of story, but entirely through, through movement. And the story is, as you mentioned, sort of a, a Virgin Mary pilgrimage. Um, I'm wondering where you find your inspiration that's so much kind of evocative imagery, and I'm, I'm curious where it comes from. Um, I uh, really loved the Bible as a child and thought that uh, the Virgin Mary was a very unrepresented character. And so in my adult life, I decided to take the liberty and, and make up my own story. And um, I took a lot of liberties. And, um, and yeah, and, and that's, that's, that's the inspiration. I think my, my obsessions. <laughs> And your screening at Tribeca is a little bit special. Can you talk a little more about what that's going to be? Yeah, so I have a, um, it's, it's, I'm almost done, so it's a work in progress screening um, at PS1 MoMA in the dome. Uh, they have this incredible white dome. So we'll be watching it on Sunday, which I believe is a very appropriate day, um, in a white dome at PS1 on April 19th at 4 p.m. And a conversation afterwards? And, and a conversation with Shireen Nashaw who is uh, one of my favorite artists, and um, I cannot wait to be on the stage with her because I'm just gonna ask her a million questions. And she's an incredible filmmaker um, uh, and, and photographer and, um, and an awesome woman, so cool. I'm and stoked. You have some interesting um, collaborators on the film in terms of your cast and the folks involved. I'm curious if you wanna talk about them a little bit. Yeah, they're all my friends, so they all have to do it no matter what. Um, I, the, um, the gentleman opposite of me is a collaborator of mine for 10 years now. And, um, and then, uh, gosh, my DP, um, I've been working with Ian Bloom for, since I started to make films about five, six years ago. Um, and Brian McComer did an incredible score. Um, yeah, I mean, everybody is just did top-notch work. And I would say, even if you don't come to see the film, just come to see their work, because I'm proud of really everybody who worked in it. So, Amazing. Um, it's going to yeah. be a really cool event. So we have time for some questions from the audience. If anyone has something for a specific filmmaker or the whole panel, um, we have a few more minutes. I just want to say thanks uh, for coming out, and congrats on getting your films to Tribeca. I was just interested in asking if you guys are looking was your intent to be at Tribeca to get funding and distributors and all that, or just to get an audience to see it, or what's kind of the end goal with your films here? You want to work? Uh, uh, I'll start. Uh, we have a, a TV deal, but I, I would love to have a theatrical release, so I'm hoping we get some interest from some theatrical distributors, and VOD, obviously, as well. Yeah, I think it's just to, to have a screening to get it out there to the world and then kind of develop a plan of where it goes distribution-wise and stuff. Are we going down the line? We're doing it. Yeah. All right, here we go. Um, 
I think that we really like screening at Tribeca because um, it feels like we live in New York and it's a great place and like the audiences can be both friends and a lot of strangers at the same time. Um, so it's awesome to have an audience like that. And, um, and of course, I think anything, you know, we're undistributed, so we're of course looking for distribution always. I mean, if you guys have money or whatever, like <laughs> we'll take it. Um, but um, yeah, I would say that for probably any undistributed film at the festival, it's always looking for distribution. Um, so I was really lucky, and HBO is uh, uh, produced and is distributing uh, Thought Crimes. It's airing in May, which we're really excited. Um, and I think it was just like it was a New York story. It was a no-brainer that it would be at Tribeca. It's an incredible festival. We're super thrilled. And I just really want to spark a discussion about the Internet for my own nerdy reasons. Um, I feel particularly lucky because we are, yes, in New York, home court advantage, and um, most of my collaborators are here, so we can all celebrate. Uh, but my film, since it really is um, very much an art film, but I also feel um, is also a narrative feature, it was really nice to find this incredible moment of being able to bring, you know, Tribeca and PS1 MoMA together for this. So, um, yeah, but I don't have anything else than that. I mean, like... I should also mention yeah, that it was great for us. I mean, New York is, is probably the dance capital of the world. Um, and in terms of classical ballet, modern dance, Broadway show dancing, there's so many, such a great community here. So for us, it is like a home court thing. The film is a New York movie primarily. And uh, we've also basically sold out our screening. And that's largely because I think it is New York, is a dance town. And if you're a fan of the American Ballet Theater, the cheapest ticket where you can see Misty Copeland is at Tribeca. <laughs> so uh, I think that all those dance fans who could never get tickets at the Met have come out. We will have some tickets for Rush, a few, right? And um, there's also going to be a performance. A couple of young dancers are going to dance afterwards. So it's going to be a, both an experience of the film as well as some actual live ballet. Hi, how are you? Hello. I have been always kind of intrigued as to how it matters for the title of the movie in the director's position, how to hmm. portray that, you know, like concept that comes to the audience through the title. Because, of course, we get the trailers, but the title, I feel, is something so powerful as to how it is picked and how we as an audience perceive what the concept of the movie is going to be. So how do you as directors get to kind of you know, convey that whole concept hidden behind that title? Yeah, I, I, I'll start, I'll just say, uh, the bad title of my, of my doc is Black Swan, the real Black Swan. That's the really bad version of it. Uh. And we thought about it a few times. Uh, but in a way, Misty's story for me is kind of a fairy tale. Uh, where she came from, which was totally left field in terms of ballet, the world she's in, the fact that she's a black ballerina and a very, very white and, and kind of very um, regimented world, the world of classical ballet is very, you do the classical pieces, you do them a certain way, there's very little vari variation, but it's within a framework. Even a soloist in the world or a principal dancer doesn't vary, it's about maintaining the tradition as much as innovating. So she's in a very interesting spot. And then also, there's kind of a fairy tale quality to the ending of the film, uh, that she ends up coming back and after all her tri or trials, like a fairy tale princess in a sense. And ballet is full of fa fantastical characters. So that's why the Ballerina's Tale title kind of stuck. 
Yeah, for, for me, I mean, it's, a, it's an homage to a book I really like, and there's also a lot of reasons for just the fact that it's, it's a very singularly driven narrative. It's a, a character's film. It's, it's, um, you know, it's very much Richard Gere's character's film. And, so, and the, the, the name Franny is kind of gender ambiguous, and, and the character's very flamboyant, and there's sort of a lot of, a lot of stuff that goes into that. It's like, am I, what am I seeing, a guy or a girl, you know, in the title? So I think there's sort of a lot of elements that go in for me to that title. I'll talk about it. Um, our title came almost before most of the story and movie. It was this idea of ha <laughs> making a Civil War movie called Men Go to Battle. Um, and then it not necessarily being a Civil War movie at all. It's really a small character-driven movie about two brothers um, living very much outside of the Civil War. Um, and so I think it was it's a very sincere movie. It's, there's not very much iron, you know, um, sort of glib irony in the entire piece if you ever see it. Um, and this might be the one slightly ironic, very forceful bit of it um, is the title. It's um, good question. Uh, I think, well, in my original development meeting with HBO, the topic of thought crimes came up and what that means. They're like, find us a thought crime. And so I felt like this uh, legal case really represented thought crimes. And so it was in a, like a working title. And there was some, you know, should this be, should cannibal copy in the title? And I was like, you know what? I think, I think it's a thought crime. And I think it's a, a conversation starter. And so it just, it stuck. Um, I mean, for my title, it's just, you know, meh, you know, like. It's just, yeah, but I think titles just in general, you know when you, you can have like a million bad titles and then you're like, oh, this is it. It's like distilled down into that. There's generally so many level layers in your one title. So I think that's, you know, important and it's really relieving when you find a good title and then you realize it's probably already been done, but still. <laughs> Hi, I think this question might, uh, might just apply to Nelson and to Aaron, but it might apply to everyone. I'm wondering, I, I guess, specifically about um, the TV deals that, or the network deals that you made before you started making your films, and how that may have affected your creative process or the film, and how you're working sort of with the people that are financing your projects, and how much creative control they had, or you allowed them to have throughout your process. Well, well actually, no, the TV deal actually literally just got signed like two weeks ago. Uh, it's ITVS who helped us finish it. Most of the film was financed by um, a consortium of independent, we got some money from the Ford Foundation at one point, but a lot of uh, people who love dance, I had, uh, the first money we got was from a female, a dancer out on the West Coast. Um, it's largely been supported by women, and uh, you see, when you see the executive producer role, you'll see uh, a, a community of women who love dance, who wanted to see Misty's story, but also just the world of, of blacks in classical ballet kind of explored. So uh, there wasn't much input. We got notes from ITVS toward the end, and at some point we'll have to make an ITVS version, uh, I guess, which will either be an hour or some variation on what we've done. But uh, we have a lot, we have time. That I don't think it's going to air on public TV for a couple of years. So it hasn't been very intrusive. A couple of the notes were good, some of them were whatever. And uh, you know, just keep it moving. Um, so I, 
I was set up in the, uh, in the HBO meeting by a man named Andrew Rossi, who made Page One, You're in the New York Times, Ivory Tower. And so he basically was sort of the person that like, was with HBO and us. And I, I mean, HBO has done this before. They, they make such incredible content. Um, and of course we sent the movie, uh, them the movie, but really they, they really left it to, um, to me and Andrew and the editor, Andrew Kaufman, to like make the movie. And they had really great notes, a couple of them, and I don't know, it was just, it was a very simple process. Um, and it was always going to be a movie for, you know, HBO. I just want to thank you all for being here. The festival will run April 15th to 26th. Uh, all the information and ticket sales are on our website, TribecaFilm.com. I also have a handful of guides if anybody wants some. Uh, we have information about all of these films in here as well as um, you know, all the other events, panels, films at the festival. Um, and a big thank you to our filmmakers today. Thanks so much.